Please join me as we read our scripture this morning, Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with him, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to him. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven of those who were with him gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Can you imagine that first Easter morning? I mean, what would you have done? So what would you hear this news? What would you have done? Would you have been in fear? Would you have been in doubt? Would you have been excited? It might surprise you to know that this first Easter morning, people were actually quite despairing. We're excited, glad to be here, singing loudly. They would not have been. They were disappointed. They were in despair. Even though these women, you know, Mary, the mother of James, and Mary Magdalene, and, and um, uh, Joanna, uh, they had seen the tomb empty, and they had seen a vision of angels. When they went and reported it to the disciples, they said that it was idle talk, and they didn't believe them. Here, they were absolutely in despair. You know, it wasn't expected that people would be raised from the dead. It wasn't thought. They believed in a resurrection, but it was a resurrection at the end of the age. Not now. Not in this life. Even Peter went and checked out the tomb. He found it empty. But you know, I don't think he left believing. It doesn't say he did. They weren't sure, but you know, an empty tomb 
doesn't prove a resurrection. It raises some significant questions, no doubt, but it doesn't prove a resurrection. This is where we pick up our story here with these two disciples. These aren't two apostles. Uh, They weren't two of the twelve. They were simply disciples. They were followers of Jesus. And and, and we pick up the story right on Easter morning because it says that very day. That is the third day. Remember, the first day would be Friday when Christ was crucified. The second day, of course, he's in the tomb. The third day, Sunday morning, he is raised from the dead. So it's Easter morning. And we kind of, it's a, it's a beautiful little story because we kind of get the eavesdrop on a conversation between these two disciples and, and Jesus. And I think in this story, one thing I want you to leave with is that, that even though they were facing great disappointment, they found great hope as Christ revealed himself. That Christ removes our disappointment and our despair. That he can lead us From disillusionment to delight. That's what the gospel, particularly on Easter morning, does. So we're going to look at this sermon in two ways. One, we're going to look at the the disappointment the disciples were facing. They were in despair. I want you to know that. But then they found this great hope that, of course, changed the direction of their lives. That they became bold and valiant and courageous for the gospel. So first, the disappointment. And then I'll throw some application at the end. But the disappointment. So these two guys, they're on the way to Emmaus. Emmaus was a small town about seven miles away. It would have been maybe a a two-hour walk. And here they're walking down this road, and they're joined by a stranger. Now we know, reading the text, that it's Jesus. But it says their eyes were kept from knowing him. That's a passive idea. They weren't shutting their eyes. Jesus didn't come incognito. He didn't come with a hat, glasses, and a mustache. God was keeping their eyes closed to who he was. Now he asks this question, what are you guys talking about? And of course you see what the text says, they stop immediately and they look sad. They look sad. Wouldn't you be? If you had to rehearse a very grievous story, a story of of great sadness, wouldn't you just, uh, you're reminded of the pain that you're in. And they began to speak about this story. And they say that this Jesus, you know, they must assume he's a visitor because how can you have been in Jerusalem and not have heard what what happened? And so they begin to speak about this story. Jesus was a man attested to by miracles. He was a man of great preaching and, and power. He raised the ire of the religious leaders and the religious leaders conspired to put him to death. It does give you a window into understanding the disciples' mind they didn't see Jesus as just kind of caught up in the political wheels of machinery, uh, but, but they saw that the Jewish leadership rejected their Jewish Messiah. But then they get to the heart of it when they say, we had hoped, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. There you see the kernel of their disappointment. They had hoped. They had hoped that Jesus would be the Redeemer. You, you know, in fact, they said he was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And that's the same expression used for Moses back in Acts chapter 6. So you begin to understand what's in their minds. They're thinking, hey, this Jesus, he's going to be like a second Moses. The first Moses led the people of of Israel out of Egypt in slavery. Maybe this will be the second Moses that leads us out of bondage to Rome. That's probably what they understood of redemption. 
that Jesus, they had hoped he would be the redeemer to lead the people out. They, they had hoped that he would be establishing a new kingdom. They had hoped that he would bring about a new order of life. They had hoped that he would bring salvation to the people. That's what they had hoped. Now, listen, they had some basis for it. They had seen him do miracles. He raised the dead. He gave sight to the blind. He gave hearing to the deaf. The lame walked. I mean, that's some evidence. They had sunk their hope in him. They trusted him. I mean, they put all, all, all their expectations with him. But then he was crucified. He didn't just die. They crucified him. They pinned him to a tree with nails. Their hope for the redemption, gone. Hope for a new life, gone. Hope for a new kingdom, gone. Hope for a new order of things, gone. It was all gone. Crushed to powder. What were they to do? They were despairing. They were hopeless. It's probably why they were going back. We, we understand the details. Some scholars think that, that you know, the other unnamed disciple in this could have been Luke because the details that were given. They're going back home. Plans are, plans are toast. Let's just try to pick up the pieces of our life. They were despairing. He died. You know, one author said that the longest journey you'll have is walking away from a grave of someone you love because you know it'll never be the same. You can't get them back. That's the despairing and the disillusionment that they were struggling with. So this was no happy Easter morning. It was a dark, dark morning. Now, listen, many of you, if you've lived long enough, you know the disappointment that comes to all of us. We can identify with the disciples, at least in this. I mean, how many of you have not wanted something, but you didn't get it, and you were disappointed? Maybe, it was, maybe it's the, right now the life that you have. Maybe it's a job you have. Maybe it's the house you have, the career that you're in. Or, or maybe your disappointment's a little broader. Maybe your disappointment is in the people around you. Your spouse has not measured up to be what you wanted him or her to be. Maybe it's your friends. They just haven't been there for you. Maybe it's your church. Maybe you're disappointed in the church. <clears throat> you could be also struggling with just looking in the mirror and saying, I'm kind of disappointed myself. I'm not who I wanted to be. I'm not who I had hoped to become. I still struggle. I still make bad decisions. I mean, all of us have this disappointment. The problem is that most of our disappointment seems to filter down into ultimately becoming disappointed with God. We're, hap- we're not happy with what God is or who he has turned out to be. We've prayed for an intimate spouse or a sensitive spouse, and, and there has been no answer to that prayer. We've prayed for a child to be open to the nature of the gospel, but they still be resistant. Maybe we've prayed for ourselves that we've tried to break free out of pornography or alcohol or food, and we just keep falling into the same things over and over and over again. And we just slip into this despair and this disappointment. God, why aren't you answering my prayers? God, where are you? In a way, it sounds kind of like similar to the disciples. Where are you? We didn't find him. He wasn't there. The irony is that in the midst of their disappointment, they say to him, he wasn't there. And yet he was in front of them. He was right in front of them. They didn't see him. How often are we blind? In our disappointment, it's like we go blind to God. He can't be there because I'm unhappy and I'm unsatisfied. 
But this is what moves them from this disappointment to finding hope. This finding of hope is when Jesus Christ began to reveal himself to them. And he does it in two ways. Two ways, he does it in breaking the word for them, and he breaks the bread for them. So it's in breaking the word and breaking the bread that Jesus Christ reveals himself. First, he breaks the word for them. This is how he opens their eyes. He says, O foolish and slow of heart. O foolish and slow of heart. You could translate that, how dull can you be? I mean, how, how silly can you be? Failing to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Now notice, he doesn't chide them for failing to believe the, the testimony of women. He doesn't say to them, hey, these women saw angels, you should have believed them. He says, you failed to believe the word. The words of God had already contained the truth to know that this Messiah would suffer, and then he would be raised to glory. The prophets had already said that. Now, I, I don't think they were in total disbelief. I mean, these disciples did believe. They kind of cherry-picked the good stuff. You know, the Messiah's going to come, he's going to be in power, he's going to bring a kingdom, he's mighty, and all that sort of stuff. They just couldn't believe that a Messiah from God would suffer. Just like oftentimes we can't believe why the Christians should suffer. They couldn't conceive of a Messiah suffering first and then entering his glory. But this is Jesus' whole point, right? Doesn't he ask, wasn't it necessary for the Son of Man to suffer? Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? In other words, Christ's suffering and the cross was no accident. It was no bad turn of events. It was ordained by God. And it was prophesied about in the Old Testament. I mean, you see the pictures and you see the patterns in the Old Testament that should have prepared them for this. I mean, you, you, you can probably name a few yourself when you look back. I mean, the bruising of the heel in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman that will come to crush the head of the serpent. His heel's going to be bruised. He's going to die. Would you see it there? Would you see it in Genesis 22 when... When Isaac is the son, he's the sacrifice, he's being lifted up unto God, the son that would die. What about the Passover lamb? And in the book of Exodus, that the lamb had to be sacrificed, the blood had to be put on the doorpost. Or what about the whole sacrificial system in the book of Leviticus? Or what about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53? I mean, it was plastered across the pages. You just didn't believe it. You just can't believe. It's so hard for us to understand anything good coming out of suffering. It just can't happen. Well, Christ is so gracious to us. He begins then, after chiding them, to instruct them. And so beginning with Moses and the prophets, he goes through the Old Testament with them. And he begins to show and interpret for them how it all points to him. Talk about a Bible conference. Jesus Christ, the, the speaker, that would... That would fill the place. Can you imagine this Bible study, walking through the scriptures with Jesus? What verses did he go through? I have no idea. I'm sure he would have pointed out that he was the seed of the woman. He was the seed of Abraham. He was the son of David. He was the spotless lamb. He was the, the perfect priest. He was the rock that brought forth water. He was the suffering servant. He was the righteous servant. I'm sure he took them through and showed how all the Old Testament just spoke to his glory and to his coming. Can you imagine that? You know, just, just for a minute, let me just pull off and remind you, this is why we read the Old Testament. 
You know, the, the Old Testament's important to us. I know it's cryptic. I know it's often difficult to understand. A lot of poetry, a lot of names in places you're unfamiliar with. But, but think about this for a minute. Jesus used just the Old Testament to describe his whole plan in person. All of his glory, everything, it's right in the Old Testament. He didn't have the New Testament. Can you imagine that? This is why we want to read. This is why I want to encourage you to strive and do the diligent work to read in the Old Testament. This is why as a church we preach in the Old and we preach in the New. We go back and forth. We keep changing testaments and genres. We're going to finish up Romans, at least the first section here in the next few weeks, and then we're going to do a series through the Old Testament minor prophets. Why? To help you know how to read them. To show you where Christ is. How do they fit within the redemptive plan of God? So we'll look at those. So you can say, oh, that, okay, this is pointing to Christ. So first, he reveals himself in the breaking of the word. This, they say, our hearts were burning. In other words, what brings us out of despair to hope? It's to see Christ in the scriptures who has suffered first and then brought to glory. We understand the cross as a necessity to bring him to glory and to bring us with him. But the second way he did it was in the breaking of the bread. Notice, towards the end, he talks about it was becoming night, they were approaching the city, and they invite him to stay. Can you imagine for a minute if they didn't invite him? What would he have done? Would he have gone on? I, I don't know what he would have done. We're not even, we even wonder about it, but thankfully, they asked, and he accepted. And he goes there, what does he do? He gets around a table, and, and he, he blesses the bread, and he breaks it. And gives it to him. Then it says his eyes were open. Their eyes were open. Now, what is this referring to? Many scholars think this is the Lord's Supper. The problem is those two weren't there. Number one. Number two, there was no wine. Number three, the words are different between both. You know what I I would propose to you? I think it's the feeding of the five thousand. I think it's when he lifted up the bread, he blessed it and broke it. See, see the miracles of Jesus in the New Testament were fundamentally to reveal himself to the people. This is who I am, is what those miracles were for. Oh, definitely to alleviate human suffering. And, and, and also, the, the miracles were to show us this is the nature of his kingdom. So we all know in this life what the nature of our kingdom's like, filled with death, violence, and so forth and so on. This is the nature of the kingdom I'm bringing, where the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. The dead are raised, and the hungry are fed. That's his kingdom. So I think the miracles do that, but fundamentally they reveal himself. What was Jesus doing when he was feeding the people in the wilderness with bread? He was claiming to be God. God who fed the nation of Israel with manna in the wilderness. So Jesus feeds the people with bread. He is the one who gives life. He says later in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not be hungry. Whoever believes in me will not be thirsty. I think he was saying, I'm the author of life. But notice the text. It says, and their eyes were opened. It's passive again. They didn't open their eyes. They didn't connect all the dots and say, oh, you're the one. No, God opened their eyes. But remember this. It says their eyes were opened. There's a unique time in the scriptures when it says that. And it's with Adam and Eve. When they ate food that they weren't supposed to, their eyes were opened, 
and they saw their sin and their brokenness and shame and they see their lostness and they were in despair and disillusionment. And now we have food being eaten again, but food from God. And their eyes were open to the glory of Christ. They saw him. They loved him. And then he disappears. But their hope doesn't. Their hope did not disappear at that point. Immediately it says they went back to Jerusalem. And of course they found the eleven because Judas had betrayed and died. They found the eleven and they rejoiced over Christ. They went from fearful to being faithful witnesses for him. So that's kind of the story. It, it really, if you will, it's like a picture of how people become Christians. I mean, if you're here today and <clears throat> perhaps you're looking at the faith, you're not a Christian, uh, this is really a snapshot of how God brings people into the kingdom. They're blind to him. Many of us lived many, many years apart from Christ. But then we read the scriptures, we, we understand the gospel that Christ had to suffer and die for the sins of people, and then only then was raised for our salvation, and our eyes are open to it. How many times had you heard the story before you believed? If you're a Christian here, how many times? Was it 5, 10? Did you wait 10, 20, 30 years? How long had you been associated with the teachings of Christ before your eyes were opened to his glory and to his saving power? If you're not a Christian here, that's what it is. It's hearing the gospel and the Spirit of God opening your eyes to see what you have never seen before. Because you cannot discover Christ. He's revealed to you. So that's kind of the story here on this road to Emmaus. So it's Easter morning. What should we take away? Well, let, me just, let me move, and I don't always do it this way, but let me just give you some application to think about. These are things that I would ask you to consider being points of conversation around tables of food today. As you eat the food, you saw the food led us out of the presence of God into sin. You see the food leads us back into the presence of God. So around the table of food today, may you think about these things. Number one, the resurrection challenges our view of Jesus Christ. I don't know where each of you stand in understanding his glory. It challenges our view. He reminds us that he is absolutely the king of the universe. I mean, the disciples missed it. These two disciples, they said he was a prophet, mighty indeed. He was as if death is going to somehow stop the prophetic ministry of Christ. He was. No, no, no. He's the author of life. He's the Holy One of Israel. He's the mighty Son of God. Paul in Colossians, 2, Colossians 1 says it this way. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. In him all things hold together. Where else? How can you go above that? Christ is glorious, king of all things. Ruler over all. Sovereign over everything. How often do we walk by or consider Christ and we don't even recognize the, in, the blinding glory that he has and that he is? How often do we treat him so far, far, far below what I've just read and what, just he's, what he has just experienced? You know, there was a, um, I think it was back in 2007, the Washington Post uh, decided to perform an experiment. 
And so they uh, retained Joshua Bell, who if you've heard much um, classical music, you'd know he's a, a profoundly talented, probably one of the world's greatest violinists currently. And um, in fact, I think the New York Times said that, uh, that he stands in the shadow of no one. He's that good of a violinist. So they retained him, and they wanted him to wear a baseball cap, blue jeans, a long sleeve T-shirt, tennis shoes, and go down to the subway in D.C. and play. And so he did. He, he went down, and he um, dressed that way, went down to one of the busier stations, and opened up his violin and pulled out a violin that was worth $3.5 million. handcrafted 300 years prior. Beautiful piece, musical equipment. And began to play Bach and Beethoven. For 43 minutes he played. Nobody stopped. They just walked right on by. He, there was a, a line trying to get lotto tickets not far away, 30, 40 deep with their backs to him. Nobody even stopped. No, nobody recognized him. Probably the preeminent violinist in the world playing on probably the choicest instrument known. Nobody even looks at him. How, how often do we, do we take Jesus and make him like a manageable deity that we can carry around in our pouch? And, and, and we forget the resurrection shows he has conquered death reigning at the right hand of God, sovereign over all things right now. Right now, as you're looking at me and I'm looking at you, he exists in all glory and power. Some of you, it's like, oh, that's nice. Here, it's going to rain today. He doesn't just challenge our view of Christ. The resurrection challenges our view of death. He's a sovereign who will never die. Death will never have dominion over him. He's the first fruits. He has been raised, and he will raise those who believe in him. And think about the irony of this. His death caused them to be hopeless. And yet it's, it's his very death that causes us to be hopeful. And this doesn't mean we don't despair when we're facing death or when we have to bury a loved one. We do. Uh, death brings grief and separation. There's a hardship to it, no doubt. But we're never without hope. We're, even facing death, we're never without hope. You know, Philip preached on this in John 16 on Thursday night, that we may weep, but we rejoice. And Jesus uses the example of a mother in, in great anguish and pain over giving birth. And you know the pain associated with giving birth is immediately absorbed in the joy of seeing the child that is now next to her. There's a song written, It is not death to die. It was remade by Bob Coughlin. He says this, It is not death to die, to leave this weary road and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It's not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. It's not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It's not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you evermore. It's not death to die for the Christian, for the Christian, because of the resurrection. I remember when, some of you know this from way long time ago, but my brother, when 
when he was dying of cancer, he'd call and he'd say, we were in Michigan at the time, he'd call and he'd say, tell me about the resurrection. Tell me about the resurrection. Let me hear what God has said about death. It was a few people have those opportunities to give such food to such starving people. But it changes our view of death. It's not death to die for the Christian. It also changes our view of the Bible. Jesus is the centerpiece of the Bible. The whole Old Testament speaks of him. The whole New Testament proceeds out of him. I mean, Jesus Christ is found in the pages. We want visions, we want dreams, but Jesus chooses to reveal himself through the pages of Scripture. It's in the Scriptures that we see Christ. In fact, he said to the uh, religious leaders, he says in John 5, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness of me. The Scriptures speak to us about Christ. How do you take a cold heart to Scripture and see it burn, a flame for Christ? Ask God for the Spirit. Ask Him to open your eyes to what you read. Ask Him to show you Christ in the Word. How many of you approach the Scriptures to see Christ like that? Let, let, me, let me ask you to, to consider appealing to God to see the eye or with the eyes of faith to see Christ in the Scriptures. Many of us, I think, we do struggle. It doesn't read like the paper. It doesn't read like People magazine. It's a totally different document. The, the, the gems aren't on the surface. You have to dig, but they're there. Let me encourage you. Let me challenge you to read the Scriptures more. But not only that, the Scriptures also... Challenge, the resurrection challenges our view of suffering. Challenges our view of suffering. You know, we are living in a therapeutic culture. We want to be happy. We just want to be happy. We want the pain to end. We want to have purpose and meaning. We want to have it all in this life. Andrew Sullivan is a writer for the New York Times, and he wrote this uh, piece on the opiate abuse in our country now in the New Yorker magazine. He says it's a crisis of of huge proportions. Last year, more people died from opiate overdose than in the Vietnam War. Uh, more people died than the most amount of died during the height of the AIDS crisis. I mean, we are a nation wanting to dull the pain. We want to be happy. And, and the massive use of opiates isn't to cure surgical pain or the pain we feel in our bodies. It's to make us happy. That's what he's, It's to make us feel good. It's to get out of the despair and the disappointment that so many of us have in this life. We, we don't understand how the resurrection takes suffering and the hardships. Only the Christian gets this. But the suffering God uses like this precious tool to form and to conform us into the image of Christ, to prepare us for the glory that awaits us. He, he uses it like a master craftsman to shape and mold us into who he wants us to be, so that when we see him, we are so satisfied. We are so happy. Paul says it this way in Romans. He says, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may share in his glory. 
I consider that our present sufferings, this is Paul's take on the whole scene, one who suffered greatly. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. And C.S. Lewis kind of says something similar when he says, you know, some say of our temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Let me say that again. Some say that our temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. He says they don't know, they don't know that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Will that change your views on suffering? When the Lord brings hardship into your life this year or next year, will you remember this? Will you remember that God uses sufferings as a lover of your soul? change you and to develop you, to bring you great glory one day. Will you remember that? I pray you will. The last thing that this resurrection challenges is our view of salvation. I think it challenges our view of salvation. We look at salvation, particularly if you've been raised in the church. And if you haven't, this will be new to you. But if you've been raised in the church, we often see suffering as, or sorry, we see salvation as this, I, I asked Jesus in my heart. It's a very personal, it's a very individual, it's a very private moment. I asked Jesus in my heart, and, and now I can be assured, going forward in life, I can be assured that I won't go to hell, that I won't suffer after I die, that if I, if I get the word from, from the doctor that I have cancer, I'm not going to fear. And so, you know, it, it's, but it's a very atomized, it's a very individualized experience. I, I think that's not insignificant, but it's very insufficient. Uh, the salvation that Christ has come to bring is, is both corporate and cosmic. It's corporate in the sense that we are joined together. The Christian here, that we are plugging into a kingdom, a people, a nation of all the redeemed. We join across time, across cultures. It, it isn't just our little evangelical subculture that we live in. We are being joined with thousands of others who have recognized their sin by God's grace and have appealed to God for salvation in Christ. That we're part of this massive movement across the world of people who love and worship Christ. I mean, it's so much more than just, it's Jesus and me. It's not Jesus and you. It's Jesus and all of us together. It's a corporate event, and it's a cosmic event. It isn't just He's going to help America. He's redeeming the world. The earth is groaning for redemption. Everything's going to be redeemed. It's going to be glorious. And it's not just this Garden of Eden reboot. It's not that. It's going to be far greater than that. You're not going to be a, a kind of this ethereal wisp up in the heavens. The heavens with God is only a temporal abode until he returns and he brings down this new Jerusalem on earth where he makes all things new. We will know one another, love one another with a perfect Christ-like love and serve him and, and just explore his creation and use our gifts to expand. Just like Adam and Eve were supposed to do, so we will be, but in perfection. That's what the resurrection has come to do. So it challenges this little itemized, this little individualized salvation. And it blows it apart. It makes it so incredibly radical. You have no idea. We have no idea. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the glory that awaits those who trust him. It's amazing. Oh, Christ conquered the grave and has been raised at the right hand, and now his kingdom is moving forward. 
consummate it when He returns. This is a big day that we celebrate and we reflect these things. It's incredible. If you're here, and you're here because you have to be here, it's your once a year, or you're with family, or let me encourage you. What we have in this life, you know there's got to be more. You know there's got to be more. I mean, I don't have to prove to you that this out there is not the way it's supposed to be. And a little bit of tweaking on education, some income redistribution, maybe a new administration, it ain't going to change that by large measure. If history is any indicator, uh, thousands of years of history. Uh, let me just encourage you to consider Christ. And let me ask you this. The fact that you have longings for more is an indicator that something transcendent is going on. We can live in our world of five senses, what we see and taste and touch and hear and smell. We can live in those for a while, but you have longings for more. And C.S. Lewis again kind of gives us a window into understanding our own soul. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. In other words, if you have longings for a, a life, that's God giving you those. And I would encourage you to ask those you're with, how does the gospel lead me to understand these things? And for the Christian here, rejoice with me in this great day. This is a day that we celebrate this crushing of death and the ushering in of a new life. It's a radical hope we have. Let's take a minute and just consider these things. That Those of us facing disappointment, there is hope to be found in the Scriptures as we, as we find Christ glorious, and then I will pray for us in a moment.